A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens Read by Tony Turner The Second of the Three Spirits Awaking in the middle of a prodigiously tough snore and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time, for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention. Now, being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing, and consequently, when the bell struck one, and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes, ten minutes, a quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. All this time he lay upon his bed, the very core and centre of a blaze of ruddy light, which streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour, and which, being only light, was more alarming than a dozen ghosts, as he was powerless to make out what it meant or would be at. At last he began to think that the source and secret of this ghostly light might be in the adjoining room, from whence on further tracing it, it seemed to shine. This idea taking full possession of his mind, he got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. The moment Scrooge's hand was on the lock, a strange voice called him by his name and bade him enter. He obeyed. It was his own room. There was no doubt about that but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe and ivy reflected back the light, as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there. Heaped up on the floor, to form a kind of throne, were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking-pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince-pies, plum-puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth-cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch there sat a jolly giant, who bore a glowing torch, and held it up to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. "'Come in!' exclaimed the ghost. "'Come in, and know me better, man!' Scrooge entered timidly, and hung his head before this spirit. He was not the dogged Scrooge he had been, and though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind, he did not like to meet them. "'I am the ghost of Christmas present,' said the spirit. "'Look upon me!' Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe, or mantle, bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice. Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, 
were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanour, and its joyful air. "'You have never seen the like of me before,' exclaimed the spirit. "'Never,' Scrooge made answer to it. "'Have never walked forth with the younger members of my family.' "'Meaning my elder brothers born in these later years?' pursued the phantom. I, I, "'I don't think I have,' said Scrooge. "'Have you had many brothers, Spirit?' "'More than eighteen hundred, said the ghost. "'A tremendous family to provide for!' The ghost of Christmas present rose. "'Spirit,' said Scrooge submissively, "'Conduct me where you will. I, I went forth last night on compulsion, and I, I learned a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it.' "'Touch my robe,' Scrooge did as he was told, and held it fast. "'Holly, mistletoe, red berries, ivy, turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, meat, pigs—' Sausages, oysters, pies, puddings, fruit and punch, all vanished instantly. So did the room, the fire, the ruddy glow, the hour of night, and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning, where the people made a rough but brisk and not unpleasant kind of music in scraping the snow from the pavement in front of their dwellings and from the tops of their houses. The house fronts looked black enough, and the windows blacker, contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs, and with the dirtier snow upon the ground, which, last deposit, had been ploughed up in deep furrows by the heavy wheels of carts and wagons. The sky was gloomy, and the shortest streets were choked up with a dingy mist, half thawed, half frozen whose heavier particles descended in shower of sooty atoms, as if all the chimneys in Great Britain had by one consent caught fire. There was nothing very cheerful in the climate or the town, and yet there was an air of cheerfulness abroad, that the clearest summer air and brightest summer sun might have endeavoured to diffuse in vain. For the people who were shovelling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another from the parapets, and now and then exchanging a facetious snowball. The poulterers' shops were still half open, and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great round pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts, shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen, lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the street. There were pears and apples, clustered high in blooming pyramids. There were bunches of grapes, made in the shopkeeper's benevolence to dangle from conspicuous hooks that people's mouths might water gratis as they passed. Soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces, and at the same time there emerged from scores of by-streets, lanes, and 
nameless turnings, innumerable people carrying their dinners to the baker's shops. The sight of these poor revellers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in a baker's doorway, and taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch. And it was very uncommon kind of torch, for once or twice, when there were angry words between some dinner-carriers who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humour was restored directly. "'Spirit,' said Scrooge, after a moment's thought, "'I wonder if all the beings in the many worlds about us should desire to cramp these people's opportunities of innocent enjoyment.' "'I?' cried the spirit. "'There are some upon this earth of yours who lay claim to know us, "'and do their deeds of passion, pride, ill-will, "'hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name, "'who are as strange to us and all our kith and kin "'as if they had never lived. "'Remember that, and charge their doings on themselves, not us.' Scrooge promised that he would, and they went on, invisible as they had been before, into the suburbs of the town. It was a remarkable quality of the ghost, which Scrooge had observed at the baker's, that notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease, and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully and like a supernatural creature as it was possible he could have done in any lofty hall. And perhaps it was the pleasure the good spirit had in showing off this power of his, or else it was his own kind, generous-hearted nature, and his sympathy with all poor men, that led him straight to Scrooge's clerks. For there he went, and took Scrooge with him, holding to his robe, and on the threshold of the door the spirit smiled, and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinkling of his torch. Bob had but fifteen bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but fifteen copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons, which are cheap, and make a goodly show for sixpence, and she laid the cloth assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes, and getting the corners of his monstrous shirt-collar, Bob's private property, conferred upon his son and heir in honour of the day, into his mouth. And now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the baker's they had smelt the goose, and known it for their own, and basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion. These young Cratchits danced about the table, and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies, while he blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. "'What has ever got your precious father, then?' said Mrs. Cratchit. "'And your brother, Tiny Tim, and Martha won't as late last Christmas by half an hour.' "'Here's Martha, mother!' said a girl, appearing as she spoke. "'Here's Martha, mother!' cried the two young Cratchits. "'Hurrah!' 
There's such a goose, Martha. Why, bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are, said Mrs. Cratchit, kissing her a dozen times and taking off her shawl and bonnet for her with officious zeal. We'd a deal of work to finish up last night, replied the girl. I had to clear away this morning, mother. Well, never mind, so long as you were come, said Mrs. Cratchit. Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm. God bless ye. No, no, there's father coming, cried the two young Cratchits, who were everywhere at once. Hide, Martha, hide. So Martha hid herself, and in came little Bob, the father, with at least three feet of comforter exclusive of fringe, hanging down before him, and his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Alas, for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch, and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. "'Why, where's our Martha?' cried Bob Cratchit, looking round. "'Ah, not coming,' said Mrs. Cratchit. "'Not coming?' said Bob, with a sudden declension of his high spirits. "'Not coming on Christmas Day?' Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, if it were only in joke, so she came out prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms, while the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off into the wash-house that he might hear the pudding singing in the copper. "'And how did little Tim behave?' asked Mrs. Cratchit, when she had rallied Bob on his credulity and Bob had hugged his daughter to his heart's content. "'As good as gold,' said Bob, "'and better. "'Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much "'and thinks about the strangest things you ever heard. "'He told me, coming home, "'that he hoped the people saw him in the church "'because he was a cripple, "'and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day "'who made lame beggars walk and blind men see.' "'Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this, "'and trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and healthy. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor, and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool before the fire, and while Bob, turning up his cuffs as if, poor fellow, they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons, and stirred it round and round and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of all birds. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigour. Miss Belinda sweetened up the apple sauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table, the two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and mounting guard upon their posts crammed spoons into their mouths. At last the dishes were set on, and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause, as Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving-knife, prepared to plunge it in the breast, but when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all round the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife, and feebly cried, Hurrah! 
Now, the plates being changed by Miss Belinda, Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear witnesses, to take the pudding up and bring it in. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly with the pudding, like a speckled cannon-ball so hard and firm, blazing in half of half a quartern of ignited brandy, and bedight with Christmas holly stuck into the top. "'Oh, wonderful pudding!' Bob Cratchit said, and calmly, too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that now the weight was off her mind, she would confess she had had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought it was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat heresy to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. At last the dinner was all done, then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth, and at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers, and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug, as well as golden goblets would have done, and Bob served it out with beaming looks, while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. Then Bob proposed— a merry Christmas to us all, me dears. God bless us. Which all the family re-echoed. God bless us, every one, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side, upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his, as if he loved the child, and wished to keep him by his side, and dreaded that he might be taken from him. "'Spirit,' said Scrooge, with an interest he had never felt before, "'tell me if Tiny Tim will live.' "'I see a vacant seat,' replied the ghost, "'and a crutch without an owner. "'If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, "'the child will die.' "'No, no,' said Scrooge. "'Oh, no, kind spirit, say he will be spared.' "'If these shadows remain unaltered by the future.' "'None other of my race,' returned the ghost, "'will find him here. "'What then? "'If he be like to die, he had better do it "'and decrease the surplus population.' "'Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words "'quoted by the spirit, "'and was overcome with penitence and grief, "'and trembling cast his eyes upon the ground, "'but he raised them speedily on hearing his own name. "'Mr. Scrooge,' said Bob, "'I'll give you Mr. Scrooge,' THE FOUNDER OF THE FEAST. Oh, FOUNDER OF THE FEAST, INDEED, cried Mrs. Cratchit, reddening. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, said Bob, the children, Christmas Day. Oh, it should be Christmas Day, I am sure, said she on which one drinks the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. My dear, was Bob's mild answer, Christmas Day. Oh, I'll drink to his health for your sake, said Mrs. Cratchit. Not for his. Long life to him. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. The children drank the toast after her. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but he didn't care tuppence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. 
All this time the chestnuts and the jug went round and round, and by and by they had a song about a lost child travelling in the snow from Tiny Tim, who had a plaintive little voice and sang it very well indeed. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty, and but they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and specially Tiny Tim, until the last. Now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert moor, where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about, as though it were the burial-place of giants, and water spread itself wheresoever it listed, or would have done so but for the frost that held it prisoner, and nothing grew but moss and furze and coarse rank grass. Down in the west the setting sun had left a streak of fiery red, which glared upon the desolation for an instant, like a sullen eye, and frowning lower, lower, lower yet, was lost in the thick gloom of darkest night. What, uh, uh, what place is this? asked Scrooge. A place where miners live, who labour in the bowels of the earth, returned the spirit. But they know me. See! A light shone from the window of a hut, and swiftly they advanced towards it. Passing through a wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled round a glowing fire. An old, old man and woman with their children, and their children's children, and another generation beyond that, all decked out gaily in their holiday attire. The old man, in a voice that seldom rose above the howling of the wind upon the barren waste, was singing them a Christmas song. From time to time they all joined in the chorus. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe, and passing on above the moor, sped whither. To Scrooge's horror, looking back, he saw the last of the land, a frightful range of rocks behind them, and his ears were deafened by the thundering of water as it rolled and roared and raged among the dreadful caverns it had worn and fiercely tried to undermine the earth. Built upon a dismal reef of sunken rocks, some league or so from shore, on which the waters chafed and dashed, there stood a solitary lighthouse. But even here, two men, who watched the light, had made a fire. Joining their horny hands over the rough table at which they sat, they wished each other Merry Christmas in their can of grog, and one of them, the elder too, with his face all damaged and scarred with hard weather, struck up a sturdy song was like a gale in itself. Again the ghost sped on above the black and heaving sea, on, on, until being far away, as he told Scrooge, from any shore, they lighted on a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout in the bow, the officers who had the watch, dark ghostly figures in their several stations, but every man among them hummed a Christmas tune, 
or had a Christmas thought, or spoke below his breath to his companion of some bygone Christmas day, with homeward hopes belonging to it. It was a great surprise to Scrooge to hear a hearty laugh. It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognise it as his own nephew's, and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room, with the spirits standing smiling by his side, and looking at that same nephew with approving affability. Ha! <laughs> ha! laughed Scrooge's nephew. Ha! <laughs> Scrooge's niece, by marriage, laughed as heartily as he, and their assembled friends, being not a bit behindhand, roared out lustily. <laughs> he said that Christmas was a humbug, as I lived, cried Scrooge's nephew. <laughs> he believed it, too. More shame for him, Fred, said Scrooge's niece, indignantly. She was very pretty, exceedingly pretty. He's a comical old fellow, said Scrooge's nephew. That's the truth. They're not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offences carry their own punishments, and I have nothing to say to him. I'm sure he is very rich, Fred, hinted Scrooge's niece. At least you always tell me so. Oh, what of that, my dear? His wealth is of no use to him. He don't do any good with it. He don't make himself comfortable with it. I have no patience with him, observed Scrooge's niece. Scrooge's niece's sisters and all the other ladies expressed the same opinion. Oh, I have. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself, always. Here, he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He don't lose much of a dinner. Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner, interrupted Scrooge's niece. Merry Christmas and a happy new year to the old man, whatever he is, said Scrooge's nephew. He wouldn't take it from me, but may he have it nevertheless. Uncle Scrooge! Uncle Scrooge had imperceptibly become so gay and light of heart that he would have pledged the unconscious company in return and thanked them in an inaudible speech if the ghost had given him time, but the whole scene passed off in the breath of the last word spoken by his nephew, and he and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirit stood beside sick beds, and they were cheerful, on foreign lands, and they were close at home, by struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope, by poverty, and it was rich. In almshouse, hospital, and jail, in misery's every refuge, where vain man, in his little brief authority, had not made fast the door and barred the spirit out, he left his blessing and taught Scrooge his precepts. It was a long night, if it were only a night, but Scrooge had his doubts of this, because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time they passed together. It was strange, too, that the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it, until they left a children's twelfth-night party, when, looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that its hair was grey. 
Are spirits' lives so short? asked Scrooge. My life upon this globe is very brief, replied the ghost. It ends to-night. To-night? cried Scrooge. To-night at midnight. Hark, the time is drawing near. The bell struck twelve. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley, and lifting up his eyes beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. <laughs>